The word uh, auspicious is uh, a word used to describe days of varying character. There are auspicious days that are momentous because they are memorable and happy, and then there are auspicious days because they are memorable in remembrance of tragic events. And so last Tuesday was an auspicious day in the sense of the sadness and tragedy it brought to <clears throat> the families of nine individuals and um, to a wider community of Asian Americans. And so you are probably familiar with the facts that on Tuesday, March 16th, Robert Aaron Long walked into Young's Asian Massage Parlor near Woodstock, Georgia, about 30 miles north of Atlanta, and he shot five people. He then got in his car, his SUV, and drove uh, two other massage parlors in the city, and he shot another four people. So of those nine people that he's, uh, he has shot, um, two were white, one was Hispanic, and six were Asian women. Of those six women, um, <clears throat> at least four of them were Korean. And in, uh, in honoring their memory, we say their names. So there was 74-year-old Sun C. Park, 51-year-old Hyun J. Kim, or Hyun Jung Kim, 69-year-old Sun Cha Kim, 63-year-old Young A. Hugh, and then the four other people that were killed in Cherokee County was 33-year-old Delena Ashley Hyun, 54-year-old Paul Andre Michels, 44-year-old Dai Yu Feng, and 49-year-old Xiao J. Tan. When we're faced with uh, this kind of unspeakable tragedy, remembering uh, that in the last year, some 3,800 reported assaults on Asian Americans in our nation, and probably that's just the reported ones, uh, we are really faced with only one way to deal with this from a biblical perspective, and that is to use the language of lament to go to God with a grieved heart because he is the one who is acquainted with grief and well familiar with sorrow. So I'm going to read um, Psalm 13 and then a portion of Isaiah 53 and then I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer. In the face of this uh, unspeakable evil, we say with the psalmist, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And then this passage from Isaiah 53, a well-known passage and a more than appropriate, not only for a day of remembrance of what happened on Tuesday, but in this season of Lent as we look forward to the resurrection of Christ. The prophet says, speaking of the servant of the Lord, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows or a man of pains, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you are a God of light and love. And so it is then, Lord God, in your tender compassion, you sent your Son to be the light of the world, to be that suffering servant, to be the one who is acquainted with sorrow and familiar with grief. And as we wrestle, Lord, with the events of this past Tuesday, we ask that you would give us the grace to ask you what you would have us do. Father, in as much as we know, sin is real. And sinful men do sinful things and evil things. Even so, we find ourselves <clears throat> always perplexed in the face of such inexplicable, inexplicable and homicidal evil. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and guide our feet in the way of peace. Holy Spirit, please fulfill your role as count, comforter, counselor, and helper. Comfort those who mourn. Counsel those who grieve. Help those dealing with the anguish and the anger created by this evil and senseless act. And Father, we pray for justice. We pray that mercy would, not, would triumph over judgment. We pray an end to all such killing, regardless of motive. We pray for healing. We pray for faith to trust you when we do not understand your ways. We pray for patience, knowing that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of your law. Almighty God, since it is by your light that we see light, help us then to obey your word, that we might be those who do justice, who love mercy, and to remember that in our desire and in our pursuit for justice, we do well to heed the words of the Apostle Paul who said, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on us, to live peaceably with all, remembering also never to avenge ourselves, but to leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Lord Jesus, we live in a world that is stained with the divisive sins of racism, prejudice, arrogance, and pride. And Lord Jesus, we remember that you were crucified for these sins. Your death has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between all races. Your resurrection from the grave means that we can, by faith in you, become one new race because of your grace. And so give us grace upon grace so that we will treat others as we would like to be treated. Fill our hearts with mercy, which will cause us to love our enemies and even to pray for those who persecute us, thereby proving that we are indeed your adopted children 
the children of our Father who is in heaven, who pray as you taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And with, uh, with that, please join me for, uh, as we pray for the message. Our Heavenly Father, we are, we are thankful for the restoring power of your grace, but also the healing power of your comfort. And so as we, uh, as we grieve um, the, the acts of, uh, of evil that are done, we are also mindful that it is for those very acts that your son came and died and rose again. And now, by your grace and by faith in him, he dwells in us. That as we keep his commandments, we know the promise is fulfilled that both he and you, Father, will make your home in us. And that your spirit now guides us into all truth. So that in the, in the face of things we do not understand, in the sense of helplessness we feel, we find in our Savior one who himself was helpless. And yet, Lord God, realized that though he had no position, he had all the power. And that we ought never mistake, O oh Lord God, position for power. That we ought not mistake status for authority. That we ought never, O oh Lord God, judge by appearance. But with the help of your Spirit, See to the heart and to know by your grace what evil lurks there, but also, Lord God, what your grace can do to change a heart as you have changed our hearts from rebels to followers, from sinners to saints, from guilty to redeemed, restored, forgiven. You have made us heirs, Father, by your grace and it is in Jesus' name that we praise our pardoning God. May your light, Lord God, which dwells in us, shine forth in all that we say and all that we do, as difficult as it is, but to trust you in all these things, for we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now we're, we're going to uh, pick up our study of, of 1 John. And we're going to look at, uh, just to set the context, we're going to look at verses uh, 3 through 11, but I want to read the, the, the full text from 1 to 11, just to sort of set things uh, in their proper setting. So John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. 
Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so we have, uh, paraphrasing uh, that wonderful song, uh, those of you who are old enough to remember the who, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. This is meet the new commandment, same as the old commandment. And uh, I will say it's good to be back. Um, I enjoyed my time in Long Island where I had the privilege of preaching at the Calvary Baptist Church in Bay Shore. And I want to thank uh, Pastor Nathan Kreitz for uh, trusting me uh, to preach in his pulpit. And from what I've heard, uh, you were blessed last week through the preaching of uh, Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. And so it's good to be back here. It's good to be you know, resuming our study of 1 John, remembering that our reason for studying this letter is so that we can grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus, so that we can encourage one another in the gospel, and then with that same confidence begin to share the gospel with those who have not yet made that confession of faith. And so as we move further into 1 John, we begin to see reasons unfolding for why he wrote the letter. That one of the reasons that he writes this letter is to remind uh, his congregation that the church is founded on the identity and the character, the person and work, the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And specifically, as Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. That that is essential, not only to a proper understanding of the gospel, but to a proper understanding of the church. Because if you, if you lose the gospel, says John, if you lose Jesus, rather, you lose the gospel. And the gospel simply is the, the proclamation of everything that Jesus began to do and teach. So if you lose Jesus, you lose the gospel. If you lose the gospel, then you lose the church. The church being the, the community of, of all gathered believers, living in fellowship with one another, living in fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So if you lose Jesus, you lose the gospel. If you lose the gospel, you lose the church. And if you lose the church, then you lose the primary means through which God shines the light of His glory, the light of His truth, into this present darkness. So there's a lot at stake in this letter that John is telling his readers about. And so the message of the, of the letter breaks in, in two parts. The first part, God is light. That's the first message of the, half, uh, the first half of the, of the letter. The second half of the letter is God is love. And so John is very concerned about stressing these two things. God is light, God is love. And those who know God, those who claim to know God, those who claim to know Jesus, he says, ought then to walk in the light, they to live in the light. They should practice what Jesus preaches. They should keep Jesus' commands because Jesus is himself the light of the world. And so if we claim to live in the light, to walk by the light, then we will do everything that Jesus has commanded us. And so he shines the light of his gospel 
into this present darkness. We do that as the church when we practice what Jesus preaches, when we keep his commandments. Some of you um, are familiar with, with Mark Dever, and, and uh, we, you read his book on discipleship for the, if you're CG leaders. He wrote another book some years ago called The Church. And in that book, in the introduction to that book, he writes this, with respect to following the commands of Christ and the impact that it has on us as a church and the outside world. So Dever writes this, The enduring authority of Christ's commands should compel Christians to study the Bible's teaching on the church. Wrong ecclesial teaching and practice obscure the gospel, while right ecclesial teaching... uh, clarifies it. To put it another way, Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible. The church is the gospel made visible. And so that's really what we're going to take as our our big idea, that the, the church is the gospel made visible. So there's your big idea. And then We're going to look at unfolding from that, that we make the gospel visible when we practice what Jesus preaches, and that we make the gospel visible when we love our neighbor as ourselves. So if we take the big idea of the gospel, uh, the church is the gospel made visible, then in my mind, a question arises, paraphrasing what uh, Peter says at the end of his second letter, "If if the church is the gospel made visible we are members of it, then what sort of people ought we to be in light of knowing Jesus is the light of the world, Jesus is our advocate and the atoning sacrifice for sins? And the answer to that question is, we should be the kind of people whose lives make the gospel visible. Because we do that when we practice what Jesus preaches. That's what John is getting at in the, the first part of this uh, paragraph in verses 3 through 6, where he says, By this we know that we uh, have come to know him, meaning Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, John is drawing a very, very clear line, right, leaving no room for, for wiggling or, or any kind of de- dissembling. He says, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, referring to Jesus. John is simply repeating, paraphrasing, if you will, summarizing what he heard Jesus himself say on the last night of his life. In the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, as Jesus is talking to the apostles just before he is going to be arrested. If you read John 14 through John 16, there's this farewell discourse that Jesus engages in, and he's giving his final instructions to the the 11 uh, that are going to carry his message forward. And Jesus says in John 14, 15, very clearly, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, this command is so important that Jesus repeats it two more times in the next paragraph. Verses 21, 23, and 24, Jesus says it again. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. And whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So this whole matter of keeping Jesus' commands is not simply a matter of following a checklist where we, we, okay, here's what Jesus says, we should do it. It's a matter of relationship. That if we truly love Christ, then we will do what he says because there is a guaranteed and promised relationship that results from that obedience. And he describes it, this amazing, almost unbelievable fellowship that he says, the Father and I will come, we will make our home, we will dwell, we will abide in you. Certainly through the the presence and work of his Holy Spirit. So our motivation to keep Jesus' commandments is based on this relationship with him and with God the Father that is initiated by God the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, our lives then reflect that relationship. So that we are changed in the way that we think, the way that we act, and the way that we live. Years ago, um, it was popular to say that if you're going to talk the talk, then you ought to walk the walk. If you, if you say something, uh, then you, your actions should back that up. And so if we talk the talk as Christ followers, that He is our Savior, that we have been, as we sang that marvelous song, if we've been restored, redeemed, and forgiven, then our lives are going to reflect those who are redeemed, restored, and forgiven. We're going to speak like those who know the grace of God, who've experienced the love of God, and it will show forth in our behavior. John wants our conduct to match our confession. He wants our actions to equal our words. Whoever claims to know Jesus, he says, will prove it by the way that we behave. It's, It's very fundamental. It's something is obviously wrong when someone who claims to know Jesus doesn't practice what he preaches. Something is very wrong when you have a church that's filled with people who say they know Jesus and yet they don't practice what he preaches. Especially if the church is the gospel made visible. What kind of witness is that? So this explains why in verse 3, John says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And that That phrase, by this, it comes right out of Jesus' mouth in John 14. So so, so all John is doing is he's communicating the very words that Jesus has said. This by this, so how do we know? He's making it clear as day. There's there's no equivocation. It's not like reading a tax code. right? there's, There's no trick here. It's like very clearly, this is how you know someone is following Jesus. If they say they know him, Watch how they live. Jesus himself said this. He says, by their fruit, you will know them. And, and uh, you, know, there's, you get this sense, too, that when Jesus says that, by their fruit, earlier in the Gospels, he's, he mimics or Jesus repeats the line from Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So we want to be people, says John, whose lips and heart are in alignment. Um, my wife used to work uh, in a dental office, and uh, she would uh, clue me in on these, these wonderful dental terms. So there's, one, uh, there's a dental term called occlusion. Occlusion refers to the alignment of your upper and your lower jaw. So if they're in proper alignment, then you have 
I mean, no pain, you, can, you, know, you carry on. But if there's, if there's a malocclusion, if the upper and lower jaw are out of alignment, if you have an underbite or an overbite, it can be very, very painful, and it has to be corrected. John is saying, someone who claims to know Jesus, yet doesn't practice what Jesus preaches, is giving evidence of a spiritual malocclusion. There's no alignment between what they're saying and what they're doing. And the only way that can be corrected is through careful and compassionate confrontation with the truth, exposing that misalignment to, with the gospel. Because if the church is the gospel made visible, then every member is responsible to practice what Jesus preaches. John Stott says it this way in his commentary that true love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but moral obedience. So we have a moral responsibility to keep Jesus' words because our love is not expressed through flowery eloquence or even sort of you know, wild, extravagant demonstrations of uh, loyalty, but it's this continual, deepening, developing love for God and His Word. It's, it's loyalty that's expressed over the long haul. It's really the, the result of a covenantal commitment to follow Christ everywhere He leads us. Calling upon all of those scriptures that talk about Christ as shepherd, God leading us in paths of righteousness for His namesake and all of that. Um, and, and we know that the long haul is intended here because John's use of the word keep implies a, the idea of a watchful, continuous observance of all that Jesus began to do and teach. He wants us to really pay attention to living a moral life, not because it's a moral life that saves us, but a moral life is the fruit of a relationship of love that exists between us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it, it's, you know, for my wife and I in our marriage relationship, I do acts and deeds of love for my wife, not so that I will earn her love, but as a means of confirming the fact that I love her and that she loves me. And so when we follow Jesus and do what he says, it's just acting and confirming his love for us, which would, is then inspiring us to, to do what he wants us to do. And bear in mind, John knows something about this from a personal level because, remember, he was in the room, in the upper room, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus turned to Judas Iscariot and said, what you do, do quickly. There, in Judas Iscariot, you have one who claimed to know Jesus, but whose behavior was absolutely contrary to his confession. So John knows whereof he speaks here. He knows how deadly that kind of behavior can be because it resulted in the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Christ. So he, and he was also there then when Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Now a godly lifestyle isn't proven by uh, you know, spiritual goosebumps. It's not, it's not achieved by adherence to a, a, you know, a behavioral checklist or even uh, tear-stained handkerchiefs. As important as those be, as, as powerful as those things can be as a result of the work of the Spirit, that's not how you measure a moral lifestyle. It's out-and-out -out obedience to what Jesus says. 
It's measured really, I think, by I would, I would consider the sweaty work of prayer. The, the gutsy self-control that it takes to turn the other cheek. And the holy courage to forgive others when they have sinned against us, knowing that we must forgive as Christ has forgiven us. A godly lifestyle is measured by what the poets would call a long obedience in the same direction. It's the product of a, a patient practice of keeping the commands of Jesus for as long as we live. So what does that look like? We, you know, John says we keep Jesus' commandments. So if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. Well, I made a list. <laughs> and hopefully they'll show up on the screen. Just, just some things that would indicate, okay, what does it mean to keep Jesus' commands? In general sense, but in sort of specific terms. We, we keep Jesus' commands when we let, in a biblical sense, we let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That's right out of Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount. But even that's still a little bit nebulous, right? Like, you're talking in metaphors, Pastor, light, what is all that? Well, it's, it's when we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's when we love our neighbors as ourselves. It's when husbands love their wives the way Christ loved the church. It's wives uh, submitting to their husbands as, Christ, uh, as uh, the church submits to Jesus. It's uh, we keep Jesus' commands when we obey our parents. It's when we teach our children how to read the Bible, how to pray, how to love Him with their whole heart. When we teach them how to forgive and to receive forgiveness. We keep Jesus' commands by confessing our sins one to another. And that's a real challenge at times. It's when we forgive a sinning brother or sister who is truly repented and seeks reconciliation and restoration into the fellowship of the church. It's when we trust God for our daily bread, when we commit to him our career and our marriage and our family, when we allow God to smash those idols that we have unknowingly created, and we go through a season of discipline and trial, and God reminds us, I am your daily bread. It's when we treat others the way that we would like to be treated. It's the golden rule. Jesus talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount. It's learning to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's when we do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. This is all from the Bible, folks. I'm not making this up. Hey, that's right out of Paul. It's Philippians 2. These are challenging things, but this is the, the nitty-gritty of it. It's when we look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And by the way, these are all the things that Jesus himself did. It's when we forgive others just as we have been forgiven by Jesus. It's when we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. Because when you do that, says John, that's how we are living the way that Jesus lived. We are doing the things that he did. Remembering again that in John 15, 10, Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John summarizes Jesus' instruction there by saying, whoever says he abides or lives in Jesus or dwells in that relationship with Christ, 
then ought to live in the same way that Jesus lived. Earlier on in in John 15, Jesus talks about abide in me. I am the vine. You cannot do anything. You can't bear fruit unless you abide in me, unless you dwell in me, unless you're spending time in relationship with me. So the only way you can do what John says here, the only way we can follow Jesus' commandments is if we just bury ourselves in that relationship with Christ and abide in Him, and and allow His Word to to take root and then bear fruit in our lives. Jesus says when we do that, when we keep His commandments, there are at least two things that happen. There are probably more, but there are at least two. John says it in verse 6. We prove that our love for God is genuine. God's love, he says, is perfected. It reaches maturity. It it is shown uh, in us by the way that we respond in obedience. But then secondly, because John likes to use terms that can be taken both ways. Because the love of God that he's referring to here could be God's love for us. It could also be our love for God. And the the second thing that happens when we keep Jesus' commandments is that God's love for us is revealed to us through God's word, through our obedience, to be that transformational power that allows us and encourages and motivates us to do what Jesus says we should do. Because that's the only way, really, that we can keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments as a a matter of duty, I mean, every student knows this. I I hated algebra, but I had to do my homework. Because that's what I had to do to get a passing grade. But I didn't love algebra. Now, some do. And they would, God bless them. I liked history. So I didn't need any motivation to read historical biographies or stories of great battles or, or of you know, significant people in the history of our nation. I love to do that. So there was no motivation there other than to just simply read. Because when you love something, you're just driven by that love to do it. And there's no thought for any ulterior agenda. You just do it because it's motivated from something outside yourself that drives you either to please someone else or to glorify God or for the benefit of others. That is what John is getting at when he talks about the love of God being perfected. You're not putting on a show. It's a sincere thing that we are experiencing. Now, we're not going to always do that correctly. Not always going to love as we ought. We're not always going to forgive as we have been forgiven. John says, even then, we are covered by the fact that we have in Jesus an advocate with the Father in our atoning sacrifice. So that if anyone does sin, we have Jesus in this dual role who pleads our case and gives his own life as our salvation. We make the gospel visible when we practice what Jesus preaches. We also make the gospel visible when we love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's the last part of this text here, 7 through 11. And, you know, it's, I think it's beyond the screen, so I won't, I won't read it. Um, just remember that the old commandment and the new commandment really are one and the same. And they are rooted in the Old Testament, specifically in Leviticus 19.18 and Deuteronomy 6.5. All right, Deuteronomy 19.18, or Leviticus rather, 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. 
but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And that sort of, <laughs> that last part sort of underlines, it's like, okay, that's why you have to do it, because the Lord says it. Uh, and then in Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart uh, and all your soul and with all your might. The old command and the new command, we see them as fully realized in Jesus Christ. Jesus said it in John 13, 34 and 35, again, the night that he's betrayed, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, I would dare say at that moment, the apostles had no idea what Jesus was talking about until after he died, and Peter denied Jesus three times, and the the 11 had to receive Peter back into fellowship. And they themselves were restored into fellowship by Jesus. And it's interesting that when Jesus gives that command in John 13, 34 and 35, he ends it with the same expression that John uses. By this, when you love one another just as I have loved you, he says, by this, by your love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how you live the same way Jesus lived. We live with the same kind of selfless, sac- uh, sacrificial love. Uh, it's the, it's the, the love that allows us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and Jesus defines who our neighbor is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? Remember, there was a question that someone asked in Luke 10, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells a parable about this fellow who's going down to worship. He gets attacked by robbers. Priest goes by, a Levite goes by, and the crowd is going, yeah, 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 those, those Levites, you know, those, you know, those priests, you can't trust them, right? They're always, they're in for the money. They have no time for the little people. And they're rooting, they're rooting, they are, for the good, devout, r- religious Jew to save this man. And who does Jesus say is the hero of the story? <laughs> the Samaritan, right? The, 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 the half-breed, the, the guy that you would, you know, Pick the worst character in every movie you've ever seen, and that's the guy that saves the fellow who has been beaten up. And then the question arises, who's my neighbor? Well, your neighbor is anyone who's in need. Your neighbor is anyone whom you can help. Your neighbor is anyone to whom you can show the love, mercy, and compassion of Christ. That's your neighbor. That's our neighbor. And when we love our neighbor like that, we make the gospel visible. And what makes this commandment new, here's the best part about this. What makes this commandment new is the fact that the one who issues it lives forever. See, it never goes, this commandment, love one another as God has loved you, it will never become old, it will never become obsolete because Jesus who issued it lives forever. He doesn't grow old, he lives now. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. There is no need for a new commandment because this one will never become outdated. There's no expiration date on this as there was with the old covenant. Jesus comes, our great high priest, our advocate. He inaugurates it. He puts it into effect by his blood. We follow it. And this is how we experience, if you will, the power of the age to come, living between the, 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 uh, the time and then John simply says, you know, if you, if you don't do this, uh, the one who doesn't live in the light hates his brother. Um, and John Stott, in his, uh, in his commentary, says this. He says, hatred distorts our perspective. He says, we do not first misjudge people and then hate them as a result. Our view of them is already jaundiced by our hatred. 
It is love which sees straight, thinks clearly, and makes us balanced in our outlook, judgments, and conduct. So how do we make the gospel visible? We practice what Jesus preaches, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And I thought how best to, to end this um, message and, and to do so in a way that could be connected to the events of, of Tuesday, specifically because that it has impacted the, the Asian American community in a way that non-Asians, I don't think, can fully understand. But there are other communities that have experienced tragedies and have responded in ways that defy conventional wisdom, at least in the sense of the American psyche. Some of you may remember, I think it was now 15, almost 15 years ago, in October of 2006, a man named Charles Roberts stormed into a one-room schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, an Amish community. And there he shot 10 girls killing five of them, and then he killed himself. After the tragedy, people around the world were amazed, if not inspired, by the way Amish expressed forgiveness toward the killer and his family. They attended, the Amish attended the funeral of this man who had shot and killed five of their own and wounded another five. They a year after the shootings, they established a fund, a memorial fund, to help the man's widow. An author, a sociologist at the nearby Elizabethtown College, a man named Donald Craybill, wrote a book called The Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy. And in that book, he writes this, I think the most powerful demonstration of the depth of Amish forgiveness was when members of the Amish community went to the killer's burial service at the cemetery. Several families, Amish families, who had buried their own daughters just the day before were in attendance, and they hugged the widow and hugged other members of the killer's family, including the killer's mother. Now, Roberts wasn't Amish. He was a milkman. He made deliveries to the farm. But the Amish reached out to him, and it wasn't... Even a year after now, 10 years later, people were still struggling to forgive, still struggling to deal with that tragedy. But the only way they realized they could deal with that was through forgiveness, was through practicing grace and doing the hard work of letting go an injury of heinous evil done to them and to their children and their community. That's walking in the light. That's practicing what Jesus preaches. That's loving our neighbor as ourselves. That is how we make the gospel visible. Think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know this is not easy work. And we recognize that... One message is not the sum and total of a lifetime of practice. But here, O oh Lord God, in your word, we see lived out on a daily basis the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is more than a mere example of moral behavior, more than a moral example of forgiveness.
but is one himself who suffered the most horrendous evil for us. That the iniquity that we committed, he bore as our substitute. That the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. That where we had gone astray, you laid on him all of our sin. So that he is more than an example. He is our substitute. And so we pray, Lord God, as we struggle to make sense, as we struggle to forgive, as we struggle to trust you in perplexing times and in the midst of great emotional and spiritual pain, Lord Jesus, we pray that as the one who is our suffering servant, our advocate and atoning sacrifice, those five bleeding wounds which plead on our behalf in the Father's presence, may your spirit impose upon us and instill in us a deepening affection for you such that we understand the depth of our sin and the greater depth of your mercy, that we might love you and love our neighbor. And that in doing so, we would make the gospel visible to the glory of God the Father and of his Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.